The Great Improbability is a new book and serialized audio drama. The book is available for pre-order now, and copies will be released in December 2009. This is part one of the audio drama. It has crossed my mind There's so little time That we lived in the sweet forever The Great Improbability An autobiographical mystery by the people of Earth David Sayer, author To Polaris, around whose constant light the starry field revolves. Book One Alone Yeah, Bugs Leary was the terror of the schoolyard. Everyone knew she had bugs that could jump on you if you got too close. Besides, she smelled bad and had greasy hair and dark skin. She swore like a boy, and fought like a boy, and wore boys' clothes. The funnest thing at recess was to run away from bugs screaming. We done that a lot. Gildersleeve School, 1944 to 1958. A dozen generations of farmers have hurled themselves against our tumbled land, their energy spent in great excess of the work achieved. East of the Connecticut River, the rock in our fields is mostly granite, and every year it rises out of the ground in stubborn fragments and must be moved away to plow. The farmers have cursed and dug and hauled rocks out of our fields building thousands of miles of stone walls, and still the granite rises unbid each spring in perverse, untimely harvest. There is a mural of this harvest on the east wall of Gildersleeve High School's auditorium, a mile up the hill from my little grade school. It depicts heroic colonial farmers, fair-skinned and muscular, laboring to clear our fields for civilization, while the darker natives watch in admiration from the woods. It infuriates my friend Ian Pollard, who teaches both art and history there. Damn poor art, if you ask me, and worse history. Town fathers thought farming was so romantic. Maybe seems that way, I thought, to folks who haven't had a season of it, and whose survival doesn't depend on it. But after a reasonable start, cows can graze around the rocks, and so, as the dirt farmers moved west, across the Connecticut, and then the Hudson, to a gentler earth, this stern land along the North Atlantic was left mostly to the dairymen. I suppose that being a milker and a maker of stone walls does seem romantic from a safe distance. At ground level, it is a cold, putrid, disease-filled, accident-prone, abrasive, exhausting, and unforgiving job that starts before sunrise and ends in the dark. 
The dairy farmers around my little school are a rough bunch, fatalistic, independent, and direct, not given to whimsy or finesse. I have taught two generations of them so far. I'm expecting a third any September now. My great hope is to stretch their seeing beyond this valley. Their hope is more practical, I suppose, to leave a better farm and a larger herd to their sons than were left to them by their fathers, and to see their daughters married well. Anyway, that was the hope of James Francis X. Leary, who had struggled unhappily for two years in my sixth-grade classroom and then escaped to farm his father's land in the Connecticut River Valley through the Great Depression and the Second World War and had every reason to hope. God and St. Mary's Church had blessed him with a healthy herd on a large pasture, an intelligent and hard-working, if unconventional, wife, two strong sons born late enough to escape the draft, and a beautiful daughter who would travel far beyond our valley. Hope is the springtime in this land driven by the seasons. But despair is its winter. James Leary would lose his wife in childbirth, his sons to prison, his farm to debt, and his life to rye whiskey. All this was Megan's doing. Leary is a man of large stature and broad hands, decent and kind when sober, easily brought to laughter or to fight. His two boys have grown in his image, tall and strong, building the farm they would inherit. Their mother had left when the boys were small, bonding the three in a grim determination to conquer the land and leave the fate of their souls to the church. In the end, I have learned, it is inclusion that comforts a people. The Learys can reach to heaven through Father Curtin, just down the road. His Latin Mass, sung exactly the same in every land, connects them in covenant with millions of believers in the embrace of a church that encircles the earth. And who will say the inclusion in so great a people is not real beyond its symbols? Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Now into this comfort, into the orderly, rhythmic seasons of our narrow Connecticut River Valley and Father Curtin's parish, came Miss Gwendolyn from a land few could find on any map in our library, Gwendolyn came into our school and into our lives. My friend Gwendolyn came as a teacher and then as Leary's second wife. She kept his thick white hair and other excesses trimmed closely, his attention focused on farm and family. Gwen's sweet voice was our music, ours and James's, singing, calling him to table or to bed, reading stories to him into the night, all in that lyrical accent, 
music to poor James, music to his soul, the only music he ever really heard. Ah, Gwen sang her way through the long toil of teaching and farming. She sang on through her pregnancy. She greeted her labor pains with a song. Megan Leary drew in her first breath of Connecticut Valley air as her mother Gwendolyn lay dying. The county hospital is an hour away by truck, and a midwife had sufficed for her older brothers, and anyway there had been no reason to expect a problem. But human birth is a much harder thing than calving. James and the midwife, frantic and despairing, had no way to stop Gwendolyn's bleeding, and reached the emergency room too late to save the young woman's life. My colleague, my friend, slipped quietly away, but we could hear her husband's screams down the corridors and through the walls of the old hospital, punctuating our grief beating against the gates of injustice. Only Father Curtin might prevail upon him to return to his farm, to give up trying to follow his Gwen out of this dark valley, to attend to the needs of his infant daughter. The security staff, unable to pull him away, summoned Father Curtin to the emergency room. Where is God, Father? She was so good. Oh, take me! Not my Gwen. James, James, hush now. God'll take care of Gwendolyn. You must be taking care of your new baby. You have a beautiful daughter now. God bless her. I don't want no daughter, Father. I just want my Gwen back. Oh, Mother of God, take back the baby. Give me my Gwen again. Oh, let me die now. Take me too. <laughs> There is little comfort or privacy in a county emergency room. Thin white curtains separate hard gurneys lined up on its linoleum floor. Gwen's body lay on one, its skin gray under the harsh lights high above, its mouth open, the thin rough hospital blanket not yet pulled over its face. James had reached a great calloused hand over the steel side rail to hold her gentle hand again, then recoiled at its cold. Oh, Jesus, give me back my Gwen. Take back the baby. I don't want it. I don't want it. Oh, God help me. James, don't be saying that. It's a sin, James. Come on now. What do I care about sin, Father? Oh, let me go to purgatory, Father. Gwen will be there a little while. Let me die and find her. Oh. The broad farmer began to beat his head against the steel rail. His pastor was alarmed. No, James, no. You can't be helping a soul in purgatory by dying. Only by praying for her here. Come on now. Come with me. James Leary slipped from the good priest's hold, too heavy to support, falling to the scrubbed floor, moaning. <laughs> Jesus, take back the baby. I don't want it. I don't want it. 
Father Curtin and the security staff lift the heavy form, still clad in the stained coveralls he had pulled on in hope only hours before, carrying and dragging James Francis X. Leary to his truck, giving him a bottle of whiskey, driving him home, laying him in his empty bed to grieve his life away. So little Megan was fed not by breast milk but by formula, administered mostly by her two brothers, whom the neighboring women hastily taught. These women saw the hand of God in this tragedy, smiting the family for mixing racial blood. For Gwendolen's ancestors had been brought to the Western Hemisphere forcibly from their African home. Though the journey seems long It doesn't take long To realize the song Always has an ending Here in the sweet forever Appearing in Part 1 of The Great Improbability were Nancy Rockwell, Stan Barker, Dennis Johnson, Smith Collins, Dolly McDaniels, and Jean McDaniels. Produced by Dennis Collins Johnson.